The Association of Mature American Citizens is an organization dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending our freedoms and securing our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, entertainment, and special insurance rates. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience in our quest for conservative principles. Sign up now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Victor. And for a limited time, get a free gift membership for someone who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference with AMAC. Join today at AMAC.US slash Victor and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. The namesake of this show is the great Victor Davis Hanson, my, my friend who I was able to see a few days ago up in uh, up in Selma visit with him it was terrific he is the Martin and Ely Anderson senior fellow with the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey distinguished fellow in history at Hillsdale College I'm Jack Fowler uh, the host and we've got some interesting things to talk about on this episode as we do with every episode um, one of the things that Victor does under his uh, uh, Hoover senior fellowship uh, is to oversee a very important online journal. It's called Strategica, and there's a new issue out, and we're going to talk about that. Issue number 80, I think. Number 80, the big 8 And we're going to talk about um, Edward Lutwak's uh, lead piece. on mil- It has a significant military history aspect to it. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Italian elections, trans stuff, uh, maybe even maybe even a Cuomo, since we're talking about Italian stuff, let's stick Cuomo in there. So we're going to do that. Start talking about that right after these important messages. Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick barrel and chamber flags. Muzzlestick chamber and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience, that it is something that they would not want to handle. 
Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I have to add, Victor, I, about uh, that I visited. I know people I'm I'm. I really treasure your 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 friendship and your kindness and hospitality. Mrs. Fowler was with me. She just you and Mrs. Mrs. Hanson were so kind to us. We want to thank you uh, for being able to uh, catch up with you uh, in the Central Valley and driving through the state. You know, when you're from Connecticut, here in the Bronx in Connecticut, you really when you drive through California, you think this is I'm on a different planet. I, I can't believe. I cannot believe the the beauty of the of the barren hills and the uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but we made paradise into a nightmare of people. Yeah, well, the infrastructure and homeless and forest I fires, do. lack of uh, yeah, airports are terrible. Everything is everything we did is as bad as everything our grandparents did that was right. wonderful. Well, when I left your house, I saw as you mentioned on other. A podcast, the Stonehenge kind of uh, <laughs> abandoned. Uh, I don't know. I hope it's not abandoned. Well, you, no, well, you don't want semi. people pissing more money away into it. We but sort that, of we do in California. We got sort of, kind of, maybe sort of work today a little bit. Okay. Well, <laughs> and remember, all contractors have to have the specified number of homeless and transgender in their workforces to get a contract. Oh wow! Oh, really? You have to have? Yeah. Oh gosh. Wow. All right. That should be a whole episode unto itself. Also, but just driving. So look at that creek. There was no water in them, there creeks. And then uh, the big, big uh, uh, clouds of smoke in the distance and you're oh, the airports. Right. But but still, Victor, such a great so, such uh, such beauty. Um, one of the one of the uh, good things about California is that it is the home of the Hoover Institution, and and again at Strategica is the online journal that uh, you were called the Uber editor of, and this particular um, uh, new uh, episode number uh, eighty, I call it an episode uh, edition. It's how the war in Ukraine ends, and uh, you know to our listeners on our last episode, you talked. Um, at um, at length about uh, the the war, and we're not going to uh, uh, revisit that uh, per se. But Edward Lutwak uh, had a very interesting lead essay for this uh, uh, issue of Strategica, and it's titled "Our Twenty Twenty First Century Eighteenth Century War." 
And I don't know, I'm not a military historian, but I like military matters. And it's just an interesting perspective. What, what does he mean by what is an 18th century war? And, and of the wars we know more about popularly, Vietnam, World War I, World War II, what, what isn't an 18th century war? Well, he, he's saying that, and he quotes this uh, quote. He actually uh, mentioned, I mean, he wrote it in, in classical Greek. Uh, Heraclitus war is the father of us all. And what he was saying, it's sort of like an 18th century war is sort of like a classical Greek war among Greeks, city-states. And it means that every once in a while in the 18th century, a bunch of coalitions, small little duchesses and states and kingdoms in a fragmented Europe would band together, oh, with the Great Britain and France or with Spain, and they would... Or they have, you know, the War of Austrian Succession. I guess that was 1740, or the Seven Years' War. Um, that was kind of a, a major one, you know, and that was in 1756. But the point he's making is they did not disrupt the pattern of life or the trajectory of Europe, or they were not like 19th century wars where you had a nation in arms. So you you had the the nation of France under Napoleon, you know, drafting a million people and fielding at one time or another 600,000 soldiers on the field of battle in two or three different converging armies or the coalition. You know, you could see at Waterloo, you get 200,000 people there in an age of, you know, uh, smoothbore musketry or even rifled musketry was starting. So, an 18th century war was something that broke out and involved a, uh, a cast of maybe 10 or 12 of the larger countries, nations, whatever you want to call them. They were not just France and Austria, Sweden, but there were Savoy and Saxony and all these Naples that don't exist today. And then they would conglomerate together and they would fight over religion or a succession to a particular crown. And it would go on and on because they were too evenly balanced or there were too many agendas that were not uh, clearly known to all the belligerents. And the point was that Europe tolerated that. It went on. And so I think what Ed is saying, he's very gifted. He's been with our group for over a decade and he's a polyglot. He's he's, uh, an Israeli military veteran. He's been in the arms sales business. He's been all over the world. So he's, he, he is a very, and he's written a really couple of, I've reviewed one, the grand strategy of the Byzantine empire, but kind of was nursed as a graduate student on the grand strategy of the Roman empire. So he, he's very accomplished. He wrote a handbook about how to <laughs> conduct a coup d'etat. What would you do? And he actually outlined what you do. And a lot of people thought that that gave some coups, some inspiration. But the point he's making is that we need, we got to calm down. Okay. So in his view of this war, it's going to have contours of its own. It's kind of evenly matched, but what we don't want to do is enlarge it to a global war that would involve nuclear weapons or more importantly, we want we do not want to stro- destroy Europe on the altar of Ukrainian sovereignty. I guess by that he means, not, those are my words, not his, but I think that his essay is saying that Europe can go on like it is. Let them buy Russian oil. Just let them buy it. So what? 
they just buy Russian oil and what's the difference? And then they can take Russian oil and use, uh, get their industries working and sell Ukrainians leopard tanks. And don't be worried about the hypocrisies and the paradoxes and the contradictions. And each side can, within certain parameters, feed their proxies and we'll see what happens. But do not think that this is Armageddon and you have to destroy pure evil and Vladimir Putin and you've got to ruin all the economies of Europe by cutting all their natural gas off to Putin, who will find other customers and has find, found other customers, and then take the United States and rearm it and square off with the idea of Joe Biden's that you're going to get him out of office. That's not going to happen. And it would be very dangerous to do that. So what he's trying to do is how do we de-escalate? And one of the ways that we do it, we diminish the importance of the war. We all pull back. We stop a little bit of our excitement. We don't give them quite as many arms. Putin's got his own problems. And then they will slowly attrite each other and get to some type of, well, we are tired, like they did in the 18th century. Let's find an agreement. And the agreement as he ends that article, will be some type of plebiscite. And right. Every I wrote an article on that. I mean, in 1935, everybody said you can't trust the Germans. You can't. But the Saarland was all German. Right. And they didn't. They w- didn't want to be independent. They didn't want to go with the French. They wanted to go back to Germany. And they had a they had a plebiscite, and the Saarland voted. I think 90 percent, and it was probably an accurate vote. But nobody wanted to die over the Saarland. And you can argue, well, that just wetted his beak, and he went into the Sudetenland. Yeah, probably so. But I think that's what Henry Kissinger advocated. I think that's what Lutwak advocated. I think Neil Ferguson has advocated that. He's got an issue, uh, a paper in this issue. But there's a lot of people who said, you know, if these 70 percent Russian areas, right, I'm not saying that constitutes the the part or all of the, the Crimea, but they do right on the border with Russia, the land border. If they want to join Russia and you think there can be a fair election, unlike his forced plebiscites. Right. And maybe I think Ralph Peters and the same issue was arguing maybe just maybe Ukraine would be in a stronger position to cede these areas to Russia because then they wouldn't have to deal with restive minorities who are basically Russians and speak Russian. Right. And they would have a more cohesive state. And they could uh, then go into a deterrent posture and, you know, build a huge fortified border or something where on one side there were people who were far and away majority Ukrainian speakers in Ukrainian. Victor, you're a uh, classicist, not only of languages, but also classic historian and also military historian, which is many people like you for selective reasons. Many people enjoy listening to you for all reasons. But as uh, Peter's, uh, excuse me, as uh, uh, Edward Lutvok writes in this article, and you just mentioned it about uh, Heraclitus, um, he, he, who wrote, war is the father of all things. And Lutvok hyphenates uh, a hyphen, excuse me, uh, italicizes all. War is the father of all things. Could you explain that a little bit to? Uh... Well, uh, I have a book, a collection of essays, actually, with that title. I, I think I published it in 2010, and it was called 
war is the father of everything. And I think he has it quoted there, as I remember, it was Palomos Ponton Men Pater. And I can even remember the fragment number, 53. 53. <laughs> yeah, but in Deal's it is. But the point, he was called the obscure one. We don't, you know, Heraclitus, everything flows. There's nothing is the same. No river is the same once you get in. So uh, he was one of the pre-Socratic philosophers. And in one of these fragments, he was trying to tell us that the, the stuff of life or the human experience, whether you like it or not, is predicated on the ubiquity of war, which is never going to be eliminated. And that's the kind of idea that it's in. And, there's, and that, that resonates throughout classical literature. There's a good passage. I think it's in the second book of Xenophon's Hellenica when uh, Xenophon is writing about a uh, discussion in the Athenian ecclesia or assembly, and somebody stands up and says, ah, yeah, wars, so what? They're breaking out everywhere. There are always one beginning, there's always one ending. And what they're saying is that these empirical observers were looking at conflict. Now, it wasn't like Amazonian indigenous people ritual where you come of age, you know, and you scar yourself up with tattoos and you paint your face and then you go out on a hunting patrol and kill two people from the other tribe or you throw spears at each other or you're the Tlaxcalans fighting the Aztecs where you're in a flower war where you're trying to take captives for sacrifice. No rituals, although people have suggested that was a element of uh, classical Greek warfare. But what they're saying instead was these autonomous little city-states were very jealous of their own property, their ground and borders. And when they had disputes, their hoplite or heavy infantrymen would meet on, as Herodotus says, the fairest and flattest plain, most level, and they would collide. And it was pretty tough stuff. And then they would adjudicate who gets what. And that would break out many times. There's a first Peloponnesian War. There's a second Peloponnesian War. And you get a car today, Jack, and you go up to Boeotia. You can go see the first battle of Coronea. You can see the second battle of Coronea. You can see the first battle of Chaeronea. You can see another battle at Chaeronea. You can go to Delium. It's not too far from Oinoe or Oinophyta or Haliartus or not too far from Marathon. So what I'm getting at is these places, these little plains again and again become the spots where these armies meet. And in Lutwak's choice of that word from Heraclitus that reflects that reality, he is saying that our concept of World War II or World War I or even Vietnam and Korea, where you get these huge Napoleonic armies and you get this huge industrial commitment and you send them abroad in the hundreds of thousands, and they have these catastrophic economy ruin ramifications. That doesn't have to happen. You can say to the Ukrainians, just go back to what you were doing. And I'm not saying that I agree with this. I just want to be fairly characterizing because you're a question. He's saying to the Ukrainians, go back to where you were in 2014 to 22, when nobody gave a blank blank what was going on in the borderline. You know what I mean? Because they were fighting Russians, right. and they had come to a point where let's have a cigarette, some tea, and then at two o'clock we'll go out and sh shoot some rounds off, right? Right. And they didn't come to us and say, "We want your most sophisticated weapons. We want intelligence to assassinate Russian generals. We want the ability for shore-to-ship missiles to sink another billion-dollar 
Russian ship. None of that. And right. Putin was not talking in those period of time about nuclear weapons. So that was what he's trying to get at when he used okay. Heraclitus and when he went, he referenced the 18th century. Okay. And uh, you can live with it in a way that you cannot live with 19th and 20th century. You can't live with a civil war. You just can't lose 600, 700,000 people right. in a c- country the size of the United States in 1865. One more of those that would destroy us. You can't live with 80 million dead in World War II with nuclear weapons and the economies just producing 80% of their output is militarily related. But you can live sort of, I suppose that's what Afghanistan was. It was an 18th century war. It was kind of every once in a while it flared up and then it died down. The problem with all of this is the 19th and 20th century mindset that is immoral to have a professional class of warriors just to go out and get killed for what? If we're going to have a difference and that difference is worth something and we're going to go to arms over it, then we're going to get everybody involved and get it over with. Right. That was the 19th and 20th century concept, 21st century of total war. Started really with Napoleon. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it did. I mean, he was the first person who said to the aristocratic uh, monarchies of Europe, your problem is that you represent uh, your own class and then you pay soldiers to fight for you. But we were a revolutionary society after the revolution and I can get people to fight for principles and for fraternity and egalitarianism and liberty. And uh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to appoint generals on the basis of merit, and I'm going to reconstitute the army in a very modern way, and we're going to get a nation, a people's army, sort of like Mao or what Lenin or Trotsky thought. Right. So so we suddenly got these huge armies, and Napoleonic 19th century warfare was to line up at Leipzig or, you know, Jena or Austerlitz and just destroy everything in his wake and dictate terms. That was not... 17th, 16th, 15th century. Right. Partly it's technological. He had the, you know, when you get in cannon and rifled muskets and you're on your way to cartridges in 50 years, you can see what's going to happen. Victor, uh, to our listeners, that uh, you'll find Strategica, and I will spell it. I'll try and spell it without bumbling. S T R A T E G I K A. That's Strategica. You'll find it at the Hoover website, Hoover. Dot org And as Victor mentioned earlier, there are 80 uh, um, issues, we'll call them issues of Strategica, and many of them are, are timeless or evergreen. So if you haven't ever um, uh, checked it out, uh, do so, and you'll find, you'll find a treasure trove there. So, Victor, um, things Italian, things Italian. By the way, first of all, have you ever heard of a, of a, of a, a left-wing person being elected uh, the, this country X just elected an ultra left winger. I, I, I don't recall anyone ever being characterized in such a way. Of course, of course, you know, conservatives are. Once in a while we say that of Cuba or Venezuela. Well, um, we yeah. meaning the same conservative centrist right. people in the United States. But if your point is, is the left wing media ever say left wing? No, no. Of course, they've been saying ultra right wing or the fascists. I mean, whatever they all all the terms that are used, probably racist too. For all I know, to about uh, Georgia Maloney, 
uh, who is the new a leader in Italy. I, I'm no expert, but I've seen a video or two. You know, I'm half Italian, but I don't speak. Well, as I heard my grandmother call me drunk, but he gone or something like that. I know a few words, but um, but uh, watching her video with sub you know uh, subtitles on it, I've I found her very engaging, and uh, <laughs> but but also she's talking about. Uh, deeper issues than just the economy and tax cuts and stimulating. And she's talking about the underlying fight for civilization and and many of the issues we talk about on this show. You know, we're this is a we don't want to be a government that that says that we want to be people that say this. That's a man and that's a woman, or that you know a a, a baby that's thirty weeks into gestation is is uh, is a baby or even prior. Uh, so she a very broad cultural um, conservative, and she won, and of course she's being vilified. Victor, I don't know how much you've. Um, read about her or investigated, if that's the right word. But do you have any thoughts thoughts about um, this woman who has now uh, become the leader of uh, one of the European powers, Italy? Yeah, I mean, there are certain types of politicians on the center or the right that absolutely terrify the left. And that means, uh, to a lesser extent, Marie Le Pen, remember her? Uh, Marine Le Pen in France, the blonde. Yes, she's, we, she's, right. she's a little long in the tooth. Excuse me, I'm not trying to be sexist. I think she's in her mid fifties, but she has sort. She had a that. Uh, she's been around a while. Yeah, she had Marianne. Remember the uh, niece that was sort of very good looking, blonde, and very articulate. So when these types of figures appear, and Maloney is in her mid forties, she's a journalist. So she understands journalism and she understands the left and how it uses and manipulates the media. And she's very well-spoken and she's a totalist. And by that, I mean, it's not just politics. She's saying she's trying to say she's warning the West beyond Italy's borders. And that's why they find her dangerous because they feel that she's charismatic and has a message that is not confined to local Italian politics. But they look at her and they say, oh, 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 she's she's more charismatic than AOC. And unlike AOC, she's no dummy. And she's been around and she understands how we do business. And she knows how to counteract that. And she's a totalist. She, for her, in her mind, it's not just conservative governance that's there, but it is you're never going to win or you're never going to restore the primacy of Western culture and all the good things it does for the world and for its people. Unless it's not just, it's not just to close the borders. So you're not the dumping ground of the world. I use that term. I mean, that's what the Europeans have used it. It's not just that you're not going to commit economic suicide by shutting down natural gas plants or nuclear power plants. It's not just that you're going to disarm and allow your enemies to threaten you, but it's also these people on the left despise the history of Europe, the church, its traditions, and they want to destroy it. And she's trying to warn people as a very young, charismatic, attractive young woman who, as I said, has been in their business. I mean, I, I, 
I think her favorite author is J.R. Tolkien. And she went to something called Hobbit Camp or Camp Hobbit. I saw her in the other day. And so if you look at the Tolkien-esque view of the world, um, you know, it's sort of influenced by the tragedy of World War I and the 20 million people who were killed in the trenches that created cynicism and sarcasm and modernism modernism and you know when you look at that novel very carefully he's looking back and saying we live in a debased age and there used to be men that lived 200 years and gondor used to be right you know and now we're and the elves and all these wonderful people and then this black cloud came called sauron which was and then saruman and these were totalitarian philosophies the one being i guess modern nazism or the betrayal of the west and saruman and the other being the red communist menace and the red tower the dark tower in mordor which he i think in tolkien thought was even a greater threat than than hitler who could be defeated and was defeated in tolkien's life just like saruman was right so she looks at all that and says this guy understood that to for the West to revive again, it has to have a fertility rate of 2.1 or 2.2. It does not need immigration. You cannot assimilate, integrate, intermarry millions of people from North Africa. It won't work. She's saying it has to have secure borders. It has to have a strong defense. It's got to have a national pride, not just some murky, who do you call head of EU kind of stuff. Because everybody's a taker and nobody's a giver. And that type of conservatism, which is 24-7, 360, it's cultural, it's economic, it's financial, it's social, it's political, it's military. That is scary. And it has a lot of appeal, a lot of appeal to people who are drifting along in modern society in sort right. of prolonged adolescence. It's mm-hmm. kind of a a reification, or I should say a distillation of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon in the United States. And why did he take off? Because he stood up and said, I know the left better than you do. I've been with them my entire life. I flirted with their ideologies myself. I teach in a university, and I can guarantee you that it leads nowhere but to unhappiness and moral and cultural relativism and nihilism. So I'm offering you a handbook, a guide, a pathway out of it. Right. And that's what she's trying to do. And that's why people hate her so much. Right. And we'll see if that agenda of hers uh, can solve other problems that transcend it. And, And that is the Italian economy. Because what she's basically going to have to do is saying, we're going to have to be Italians, but we can't be complete Italians. And borrow all this money and and not have a productive work week comparable to other European countries. Right. We'll, well see. Italy is I hope she's I hope I, I hope she succeeds. And when she when you see a figure like Victor Orban's another one, the left goes crazy. They cannot stand them. You can get some socialist that stands up in Cuba and kills twenty thousand people communists like Castro and you know Michael Moore will go down there and say he's got he's a great man but you can't just some kind of right-wing reformer conservative reformer they go nuts but they go especially nuts when they're bright they're attractive they're young and they're well spoken you're right when you listen to those speeches and you see them and what the text of them it is pretty powerful and then the yeah, idea is, that she uh, doesn't take anything off anybody 
when you have this sort of Trudeau on steroids, Macron, who weighs in on everything with this haughty Gallic arrogance. And he sort of says, oh, yeah, she is a threat to the entire European. And, and she just says, don't lecture us. We know what you're doing in North Africa. You know mm. what you're doing in there. You're exploiting the North Africans. You're right. in Africa. You're taking their precious metal for batteries. You're in your old former imperialistic colony. We don't do that in Italy. We don't go into Somalia or, or Ethiopia or Libya. But you French think you still have rights to do that, to tell your Africans how to be French. We don't do that. And don't lecture us. And so mm. she really took after him. Yeah, she's that's very uh, inspiring. Even uh, I'll say one thing about. By the way, Tolkien was uh, was uh, a, a great Catholic, and and he much of what he wrote was was based on his faith. And she's a, a faithful very Catholic. I think that, about the fall and redemption and the afterlife. There was a lot of Catholic yeah. uh, symbolism in Lord of the Ring, right? I feel for uh, Maloney trying to uh, be more Italian than the Catholic Church, uh, even though the head of the church, well, he's Bergoli, uh, Italian via Argentina, but you have a very liberal church and uh, and uh, a Catholic leader who's uh, more Catholic than the church. So it should be interesting. Dynamic I know what that, 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 that's fascinating for me is when I've been reading about her, she's getting most of her flat, not from the left, but from the left wing church. Because they're yeah. for, they're for open borders, and well, you know. even worse, Victor. I know you know this. We shouldn't go down a Catholic rabbit hole, but just as a a Dan Mahoney, our friend, wrote this terrific piece in the American Mind uh, last week or, or the week before, but it was about the church. And, you know, those ahead of the uh, under John Paul II, he created a essentially it's a pro life. Uh, office within the Vatican, and now the pro life office is run by a bishop who said. Italy's abortion law, which is no no nation's abortion law, was as promiscuous as America's under Roe v. Wade, but uh, is a settled matter and we should just accept it. It's kind of hard. Like, wait a minute. Abortion in Roman Catholic teaching is is an abomination. It's why you would be excommunicated if you were involved in, in abortion. It's taking of a life. And to have a Catholic bishop, a uh, 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 heading of a, a pro-life bureau in the Vatican say this, and it's symbolic of how disease the uh, the church at its hierarchical level is and and uh, and how clericalism is 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 also i can i can i can feel why why my protestant brothers uh wanted to reject uh wanted a reformation and i think uh i think we may be heading to that but she's a, she's internally within italy you know that's of course the culture is steeped in, in roman catholicism even though most people don't practice it but it's still very much part of the culture. i, I just remember that she said uh that famous speech I think, that got her attention, she said things that were absolutely logical, that were the foundations of Western civilization creed, but it's an enactment to the left. She said, I'm a woman, you know, I'm Italian. Uh, so I'm a woman. There's only two sexes and I'm one of them. And I'm Italian. I'm not a Euro citizen. I'm a citizen of a particular country with a, an illustrious history and I'm a mother, and we have a low fertility rate, so I have children. And then she said, the worst of all, I'm a Christian, and I believe in a hereafter, in the duality of body and soul, and right. it requires faith other than besides reason. 
and we don't care how reasonable the modern world claims it is, it still can't quantify why we're here with data or math or physics. It requires faith in the Christian tradition. So she, that was, and then, you know, everybody said, that's what Mussolini said. No, he didn't. He said, you know, fatherland and all of that stuff. She, right. But she's, she, she's scary. She's uh, volatile. She's revolutionary. She's well-spoken. And when they, when these figures appear on the conservative side, you know, whether it's the younger Le Pen, who was kind of a little bit more savvy than Marine was, right. she kind of dropped out after her failure. Um, or you see a guy like Reagan, or you see a woman like Thatcher, they they just despise them because right. they're very charismatic figures and they appeal to people across the political spectrum. And right. one of the things, as I remember, she said, I'm here for everybody. So she was basically saying, I'm not here to advance a right-wing agenda. I'm here to convince you that traditional conservatism and traditionalism will be in your benefit, and I'm going to show you how, and you're going to like it. And also, Victor, I mean, appealing to Italians as Italians who still must be smarting from several years ago when the, I don't know, he still, I don't know how the hell they did it. The EU imposed Italy's leader on them, you know, without. Well, was, I mean, it, let's be honest that Portugal, Portugal, Ireland, uh, Spain, Greece, and Italy were run by the Deutsche Bank. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, they ran it. They told them exactly what their budgets were going to be, what the interest rate was, what their tax schedules were going to be. And let's be more honest and say the Germans knew that there were more Mercedes per capita in Athens bought on time than any other city. And they were perfectly happy to send them Siemens and all of these uh, Mercedes and BMW right. to this consumer little country of 12 million and just so they got the high interest rate seven to eight percent and they knew they couldn't pay it back but it was the idea that it was a ponzi scheme we'll give you our stuff at high prices you buy at high prices we'll loan you the money just keep paying the interest and then when the whole thing blew up in 2008 it's my god these people what's right. wrong with them they take siestas these damn Southern Europeans. Well, yeah, they're gambling in <laughs> Casablanca. Uh, hey, Victor, let's talk about another Italian, uh, Italian American, uh, Chris Cuomo. And we'll do that. <laughs> you were going to say anything about you. So thank <laughs> no, you. no, no. Yeah. And we'll do that right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen show. Uh, my good Swedish friend, Victor Hansen, S O N, do not do S E N. Go yeah, to Victor Hansen. I always Hansen. tell our audience Swedes right. are Danes with their brains blown out. <laughs> That's what I'm told. Well, go to his website. It's it's victorhanson.com. It's not victordavishanson.com. It's victorhanson.com. to Swedes in America. Well, you still make great Sweden, cookies. Swedes, Swedes overseas. Swedes are overseas. Every yeah. once in a while, you know, it's very funny. I've had this happen maybe two or three times in my life. This guy from Sweden has showed up at my house. Or I've been in an airport and I meet a guy from Sweden. Or there's a, a doctor I just met. Right, famous doctor Martin Kohlendorf, uh, that's Swedish. Man, I don't speak Swedish. My father didn't speak it very well, but uh, they feel brotherhood with the with VDH. I want yes. to, yeah. But my mother would always chastise me and say, "Just a minute, we may have these old Volvos, and we have to buy Electrolux vacuum cleaners, and we have to eat rye crackers, and but we're half Welsh Irish." So remember right. that Reese Davis was your grandfather, Reese Davis, well, and you're a Davis. So these have these have they have their their own time and season. Mon they bubble yeah. up. Mongols yeah. have do loyalties. Right. Well, anyway, you you do have a website, VictorHanson.com, and there uh, is um, uh, one will go one who goes there will find um, Victor's appear videos of Victor's appearances. Uh, links to, and actually the full text of many pieces that he's written. And there's also uh, uh, there are articles under the banner of ultra. That means they're exclusive to the website and they can only be read by those who subscribe to VictorHanson.com. And how much is that? It's five bucks a month. And it's a lot. There is a, Victor writes a ton of original exclusive content every week. So I want to encourage you. And many have listened to this and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Well, finally do it. Go subscribe $5, stick your toe in the water, test it out. It's $50 for the full year. You will not regret it. The only thing you will regret is not having done it sooner. As for me, Jack Fowler, I work for American Philanthropics Center for Civil Society, and we try to strengthen civil society. And one of the things I do every week, rain or shine, no vacations, I always, whether I'm on vacation or not, I write a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. Sign up for it, civilthoughts.com. It offers a dozen or so recommended readings from thought journals and just worthwhile things uh, that are floating around out there. I think you might uh, find them enjoyable, educational, inspirational, etc. It's free. We don't sell your name, so no risk. That's civilthoughts.com. Victor, I was listening uh, this morning. Uh, car, well, where, I forget where the hell I was going. But uh, anyway, I heard a, 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 an ad on the radio that News Nation, which is the old WGN, the Chicago superstation that's been around, you know, for years back in the infancy of HBO, et cetera. Now it's News Nation and Ashley Banfield uh, is, is on it. And I think Dan, uh, Dan Abrams and some others, but they've just announced a new hire, Chris Cuomo. He's going to a show there. And I, Victor, this is a, this is a big lob up the middle, but, this guy was fired from his job because he was a um, um, a shameful journalist. He he was he he used it for partisan 
What I sin did say he not incestuous, incestuous purposes? Did he, did he sexually <laughs> harass people? Apparently he did. Yeah. Did he try to deny it at first? Yes, he did. Did he uh, go on camera and claim that he had been in isolation because he was infected with COVID and he wanted to stage his triumphant return? Uh, when we know that that was untrue, that he'd already been out earlier, in fact, and gotten a confrontation with somebody who saw him, and that was all a fraudulent scene? Yes. And did he interview his brother at his brother's, the governor, Andrew Cuomo's time of, you know, accusations and turmoil where several women said that he pawed them variously? And then did Chris Cuomo interview you, him without telling us? that there was no firewall between them. In other words, that he was publicly on TV during the day, sort of disinterestedly, supposedly interviewing his brother, why in the morning and night they were on conference calls strategizing how to get him out of his uh, sexual harassment trouble. And so, yeah, so he's he's completely discredited. Right. But, there's no shame in journal in people who go awry in journalism. We've talked about these things before. Plagiarists that we've we 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 know and and here how does a thing called News Nation hire somebody who's who's a profession yeah, as a has, has been anathema to what he, journalistic he, ethics are? He did one thing that was smart, and all of our listeners know what that one thing is. When we go into our professions, whatever you're listening out there, whatever profession you are, high school teacher, principal, reporter, CEO, whatever it is, at some point in your life, somebody's going to offer you a deal. And the deal is this. Shut up. Nod your head. Faint. We don't care what you really are, but go through the motions that you are woke, you're left, you're part of the team. And you are issued indemnity insurance. However, snarl, scowl, roll your eyes, be a contrarian, a lone ranger, a steppenwolf, whatever it is, and suggest you're conservative in these institutions. And they are all the institutions. They don't, when I say these, we've been through that before. But, and then you have no exemptions. So Chris Cuomo was a man of the left. And Andrew Cuomo is a man of the left. And for a brief moment, the Me Too fought with that reality. Now, Me Too, Trump, it, there's a hierarchy on the left of their intersectionality. Feminism trumps generic leftism. But gayness usually trumps feminism. Minority status vies with gayness. But for now, transgenderism is at the top. Uh, that's untouchable, as, as uh, we know. So Chris Cuomo had the right insurance policy, but he was up against the Me Too and all of that stuff. So, but he did take it out as a matter of So he's got a second chance. And I, I will guarantee you that Andrew Cuomo, his brother, will have a second chance, whereas another person is all done with, finished, kaput. Yeah. And that's, that's going to happen. And he violated about four canons from sexual harassment to lying about the quarantine to lying about what was really his relationship with the brother that he was interviewing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think he had the, he was a, of a very poorly rated network on top among of a bunch all. of losers. Right. He was the king of the dung heap. 
And so he had the higher ratings. I mean, because he didn't have much competition. Don Lamont, maybe. Right. So he, I don't know, he, he, he had that little shtick where he filmed himself and he was always lifting weights and he was trying to pose with sort of half of his, remember he had that little scene where he walked naked or something or he was, he was a narcissist. Right. He just wanted to beat up the guy, man. The, don't call me Fredo. That's yeah, like, that's like, uh, like a, he cur- thought he was Mr. Tough guy. And yeah. He's Mr. Tough guy, left wing guy. And yeah. Kind of like Biden in that regard. You know, there's a, there's a Biden you know, uh, one, promo yeah, exactly. over Deterrence makes the world go around. That's just a simple concept we should all remember. Deterrence makes the world. When you're not deterred, then you're capable of anything. And deterrence can be religion can deter you from your appetites. But when these guys have no religion that's real, or they have no social creed, and they're not afraid of the media, and they feel that their transgressions will be contextualized because they're men of the law. They'll do anything, and they get away with it up to a point. Ke- Kevin Spacey, Charlie Rose, all those people got get away with it. And finally, they get too egregious, and they get caught. And Joe Biden got away with it. If Joe Biden, you know, I mean, with his Tara Reid, and I mean, you got a guy that was for 30 years had some sick attraction to preteen girls and squeezing them and blowing in their hair and touching right. them. And then, you know, taking showers with his daughter. Yeah. It, God, it was. And if he had been anybody else. Oh, my gosh. Was, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Are you going right. to talk about, speaking of taking showers. Yes. Yes. We have this transgender thing that went on. right? Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let me, let me, uh, let me set this up so I can read it. Cause I got this all prepared. Well, there's a piece in the daily mail, uh, which I read several times uh, a day. Or I check it out. Vermont girls, high school volleyball team are barred from their own locker room after complaining about transgender student who uses it and who made inappropriate remark to them. And here's how the story begins where you guys just suffer through my Bronx accent for a half a minute. Members of a Vermont girls high school volleyball team have been banned from using their own locker room and now have to change in a single bathroom stall after they complained about a transgender teammate. Some teammates alleged that the transgender player at Randolph Union High School made an inappropriate remark to some of them while they were changing in the locker room. They now want the school to relocate the transgender player who hasn't been named, no details of the remarker, blah, blah, blah. But Vermont state law means that students can play sports and use the locker, which correspond to the gender to which they identify, et cetera. Uh, You know, Victor, this probably, this is one story. There's probably, um, you know, a hundred of these stories likely could be written in in America, in America today. Um, And we've gone from, a few years ago, um, the glorification and maybe in many ways, rightly so, of, of girls sports and Title IX or some some uh, desire to achieve some balance there. And of course, with the use of, of you know, public funds. But uh, damn, I'd hate to be a girl uh, athlete, uh, a high school athlete in America today. Um, you're, you're, you are going to be tormented, not only on the playing field by your transgender teammates or opponents, but in the locker room where where Johnson is swinging and swinging around and you're supposed to accept it. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Crude as it is, Jack, but the point is that all transgenderism isn't equal. 
So if a woman is transitioning to a male, she's going to be vulnerable in a locker room of other males. They're going to be, uh, there is some problem if she's not fully transitioned. She has female genitalia, but she's not going to be the one uh, that's the aggressor, given the difference in the male sex drive and bodily strength is what I'm trying to say. But when you get males that are biological males, and we know this from prison, Jack, that when you put biological transitioning women, even if they are genuine, not genuinely transitioned, and you put them in female prisons, we have case after case of rape right. and assault, especially right. in Europe and Britain. And we know that, and we're already reacting to it. So when you bring in a biological male with testicles and a penis, and you put them in to a environment where a lot of women have to shower and feel kind of awkward anyway, naked among other women probably. But at that age, everybody is awkward. But then you put somebody with male genitalia in there and he says something to the effect that we don't know quite what it was, but it's an obviously sexual in nature. <laughs> then you can't just drive them out and say that they're transphobic. It just doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. We had up until this transgender hysteria, we had come to the a plateau where we had finally said that having sex or discussing sexuality with preteens or teenagers is wrong. I know there's a whole movement to sort of break down that taboo, but it's wrong. And people are not fully aware of their sexual capabilities till they're 17, 18, 19, 20. We do have things in some states of the age of consent, 16 to 18, for a reason. And adults do can be predators. So we try to protect that, that group that's coming of age and discovering their sexuality. And they're not comfortable with their bodies. And they're going through hormonal transitions. And so that should be a place for women that have to, by the nature of their sport, to undress, it should be, a, it should be a, a sanctuary for them. And they shouldn't have to have somebody come in uh, with male genitalia and then snicker or whatever they're doing. And if we do think that that person is now a female, even though biologically he's not a female, then, then it's up to him or up to the school to find a place for that one person right. separate. And I never understood one thing about this whole transgendered idea. If there is really three sexes, right? Mm -hmm. Or there's multiple sexes. 157 at last count. Exactly. Why didn't we just say these are male sports? These are male dorms. These are male prisons. These are female dorms. These are female prisons. These are female sports. And if you're transitioning... That is that you feel you're trapped in a body that is not yours and you, these uh, biological sexual organs are not yours and you're either going to keep them, but I, I guess nullify them hormonally or you're going to re, I don't know, engineer them, then you're transgendered and you're going to have a separate category. And we would have no problem. We would just say these are transgendered. We, it would be expensive, but we can say these are transgendered sports, male to female, female to male. And if we were to do that, it would be my cynical supposition hmm. that 
what is probably statistically before 2010, let's take an arbitrary number, maybe mm-hmm. 0.2 at most or 0.3 of humans are suffering from gender dysphoria. Right. And we wouldn't have this sudden onslaught of this topic because people would say, okay, you're, you're transgender. Do you feel that you're transgendered? Uh, this is the age uh, of consent when you, then you're able to make these very permanent decisions about very serious, dangerous drugs and irrevocable surgeries. And then when you do that, you are a transgender person and you can have your own, you can have your own gender. We have no problem with it, but right. But you're, 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 you're putting a whole lot of things into one bucket because what if I'm uh I identify as a, but I don't want to go through surgery, but therefore, but I still expect distinct civil rights as whatever one of these hundred for cisgen, whatever the frick, you know. It doesn't matter if you want to say you're transgendered, whether or not you've altered your genitalia. Right. Or secondary sexual characteristics. You can be in that group. You can have your own. You can let that is a problem for the the transgendered community to work out. Yeah, but you're not telling the majority of young girls that this is the way it's going to be, and you're going to sit here why a man why a man that has budding breasts walks around with an erection in front of you. Yeah. It's well, not going to happen. We're going to have and five guys say, that. Yeah, we're going to say to males, this person is not going to be in the gym and suddenly take off right. his clothes, and you're going to see a vagina right in front of a young man. It's not going to happen. And you can deal with these much more amicably and responsibly within the transgender committee. And we'll give you the resources. We're going yeah. to have every dorm. We're going to have a smaller little dorm that says this is for transgender. It wouldn't wow. be hard, but it would do one thing. What? It would take the patina off of it. It would take this idea that it's so cutting edge. It would just be a normative decision that we would all kind of say, you know, nature has weird idiosyncratic ways of working. And every once in a while, a person uh, who has a brain and a central nervous system that is one gender is put into a body of the opposite gender. Sometimes we can't determine that because they may be homosexual or lesbian. We don't know. But often these people are in a separate category and they need separate facilities for them. And I don't think anybody would care. I would Nobody well, would care, but I do care when they destroy female sports, when all right. young girls have all of these heroes and heroines, I should say, that have made all of these wonderful strides in female sports and swimming lessons and equestrian uh, swimming records and equestrian achievements. And suddenly you bring a biological male with a different frame, stature, muscularity skeletal system and then they just destroy all that right so wrong on so so many levels victor we well we've seen a one-on-one swimming at upenn but i i'm i i, I think we'll see sooner than later five guys fresno state just to pick <laughs> pick a school in your vicinity you'll get so we're all women and we're trying out for the girls basketball team and and we're going to be the uh, national so. champions I, I don't think so no? i think no i think i think the problem that this advocacy has is it's butting up against certain elements of the leftist coalition. It's butting up against lesbianism. It's butting up against the gay community. It's butting up against feminist. It's butting up against uh, 
the left wing. And so you can't quite say yeah. that these are right wing nuts that are bigots that are after transsexuals or, you know, transgender people. You can't. Actually, Victor, there was a guy. Did you see this story? The guy, he was at, at that. What was it? The Stonewall. But way back where, you know, where the gay movement yeah. publicly started. And he was beaten up at some some rally, some some trans parade. Uh, I forget where it was. It was uh, I, I don't know. It was in the Northeast about about a week ago. And he he held up something. Oh, listen, you know, stop stealing. Essentially, a sign like a, a, a stop stealing the gay movement or, or compromising it. He didn't. That was not what the sign said, but it was essentially like that. And they literally beat him up. The trans. I mean, so you're right about the but the gay movement, but yeah, head, the, the lesbian what I think what's so strange about the trans movement is that uh, they have this historical ignorance that they feel that suddenly in the 21st century in America, people came of sophisticated age and knowledge and greater humanity, and they appreciated this. No, it's an ancient question. You know, if we had time, we could go back to the poet Catullus. And, you know, he wrote 50 to 30 B.C. And he has a poem called Attis, A-T-T-I-S. And it's about the importation of the rights of Sibylle. And a young Western Italian Roman decides to join this cult. And he's sexually ambiguous. And he goes into the ecstatic rites. And they hit the drum. And he does this. And then in this ecstasy, he cuts off, I think, in Latin in the poem, as I'm calling by, it's ponderous, uh, the neuter plurals, ponder. He cuts off his testicles, castrates himself to become a feminine figure. And all of a sudden, the poem switches, and he's referred to, get this, uh, as Illa rather than Ile, that he has the feminine pronoun halfway through the poem. Okay. And then the rites, the wine, everything ends, and he's stuck. And so he looks out at the coast and he regrets what he did. The point that I'm making it, that self-castration, what I'm point that I'm making is that the Romans were quite aware of gender dysphoria. They were quite aware of transitioning. They were quite aware of people who wanted to remove their sexual organs, even in the age of pre-surgery. And if you go look at the Satyricon, a novel written somewhere, I don't know, it must have been written 50 to 60 AD in the Neronian age by a Roman aristocrat, Petronius. You can see that cross-dressing, men wearing wet makeup, just flagrant everyday gay sexuality, sodomy, anything. And you can see people who are transgendered and transvestites. And they make a distinction, men that are heterosexual but like to wear female clothes and men who like to make wear female clothes who are passive, what the, what the Greeks called kanidoi or passive homosexuals, and men who wear female clothes who feel that they're actually women and want to alter their... So it's all been known, and it all represents a small percentage of the population. But this idea that suddenly in 2022, there's going to be an epidemic of the schools are going to be instructing and teaching because it's a great civil rights, you get the impression that this affluent, bicoastal, upper, 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 white, wealthy class has gone through the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, 
the feminist movement, and they need another movement. And they've taken an ancient phenomenon, an ancient uh, biological fact of gender dysphoria, and they've made it into this great issue of our times. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I'm not trying to deprecate it, but it isn't. Yeah. It's, and it can be dangerous because when people are coming of age and they're starting to have hormonal release, it affects them. And sometimes a 12-year-old or 11-year-old or a 13 is not completely an adult in terms of judgment. And when you tell these young people that your destiny is in your hands and we're going to take your breast off at 14 or we're going to give you a heavy dose of big pharma hormones. And we're not going to tell your parents. And we're not going to tell your parents. (laughs) Then you want to say to the left, wow, you were the people who always told us that children had to be protected. Nancy Pelosi always said we do it for the children. You're the ones that always told us that doctors and the corrupt medical uh, were always doing unnecessary intrusive operations to get rich on it. You were the ones that told us big pharma was always passing these highly dangerous drugs that had not fully been uh, examined for the side effects on younger people. And now it's all okay. I don't get it at all. I think we're going to get, I'm really sad because I think what's going to happen. There are truly transgender people. Obviously there are very small, 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 small percentage, Mm -hmm. but we're going to get a lot of people who are going to get caught up in it and they are going to take steps of sexual altercation, alteration, excuse me, that are going to be irreversible and they're going to have problems and regret it. Absolutely. Victor's already plentiful. I don't say plentiful, but ample uh, uh, anecdotes of people who've gone through it and said, oh, my God, this is a terrible mistake. I, well, I, you know, I was just a kid and I and I, I should have I was going through a period, going through a phase and look, and I can't I can't reverse it or data about the suicide rates, uh, which I, are, I which wonder are if I can sue the school district or the counselors. You know what well, I mean? Who, yeah. who advise them to do that, or the doctors, or the medical associations that have uh, that have become. Uh, I don't understand stories. why, of all places, it seems like Vanderbilt, right? Yeah, right. The co- yes, the college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, you know what? I I just remember that poem. You know what? Um, when he castrates himself and then the ecstatic uh, mood, you know, passes and the cruel God Sibylle is, you know, he understands what he's done. He, you know, at the end of that Catullan poet and Catullus is very candid about his sexual ambiguity. He's got a lot Mm -hmm. of poems about homosexual lovers. So he's no prude and he's pansexual. Right. He says in this poem, you know, that let I'm, I'm doing it. I know the Latin, but that won't do any good to say that. He's saying, let other people be driven into frenzy, right? Uh, but not me. And uh, so what he's suggesting is that this urge to, I don't want to use a mutilate because that's sort of the Roman idea, but the idea that you're going to alter your sexuality is something that's irreversible. And it's sort of a fit that you're in unless it's carefully done and you're going to regret it. And this is somebody writing, as I said, around 40 BC, who must have seen people 
do this that under the guise of being servants of Sibylle is what I'm trying to say. Right. And it it happened, but you know, you start reading about these people and you, I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to break confidence, but I would say in my own experience, the last three years, I must've been, you know, at the airport right. or people come up to me at a book signing. I must've had 15 incidents or people I know, and they'll come up and say the following. My daughter is transitioning. She just came home and told me she doesn't want to talk to me. She's transitioning and she's getting this advice and she's now in the hands of the school district or her doctor. And right. they're talking about 12 year olds or three. Right. And imagine being a parent and, 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 and having your child essentially stolen from you. And for that purpose, it's just, it's, yeah. and, I, and then to have a larger society demonize people who show concern. Right. And it's, it's one of the strangest things. I always thought that the liberal community was on the side of powerful women and did not want men in prisons with our people with male genitalia in prisons. I thought they were fighting for generations to make female sports comparable to male sports right. in terms of investment and expenditures. Right. And I thought that they were trying to distinguish and t- reassure the gay community that they would not be subject to systematic discrimination. And yet this thing comes along and it kind of blows up all of that work. Yeah. If I was a young woman right now and I was, you know, playing tennis every single day and my whole dream was to get a scholarship to go to Berkeley here in California or USC or something, and somebody who was a male could could just appropriate that, I, I don't know. It would be hopeless. Uh, it's not it's not fair. It's not just right. swimming. We we you see it in track, especially. Yeah, the big case in Connecticut, the high school yes. you know, the kids, uh, a little more, you know, there are lots of parents who, who think that kids high school sports is going to be a, 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 a scholarship pathway. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that happens to a significant number of people. There are many more that doesn't happen to have those dreams. But uh, yeah, you, you're not, you would be the state champion as a woman, as a young you know, girl, except, uh, well, this dude just won. And uh, I'm not the state champ. And there goes my dream of a scholarship. It's, it's just terrible. It's terrible. Hey, Victor, I just wanted I found uh, what I mentioned before about the guy. It was in Burlington, Vermont last week. Veteran gay rights protester, 75, 74 years old. who was at the 1969 Stonewall riots. He was attacked by pro-trans mob at Pride event for a sign dismissing transgenderism as w- woman face, a la blackface, you know? So it's, uh, the, yeah, there's real uh, contention between uh, uh, between these uh, movements that many people would think, uh, well, they, they're all on the same side, aren't they, sort of? No, they're not. Uh, anyway, Victor, we, we're about out of time. I want to mention, Victor, I forgot, I haven't done this in a, in a, in a bit, uh, if, if uh, any of your listeners who are very active on Facebook should uh, check out the Victor Davis Hansen Club. It's a not affiliated officially in any way with, with you, but they're very friendly folks and they're very uh, uh, they find out uh, of videos that you were did 15 years ago as a treasure trove, that sort of uh, sort of stuff. And also back on your website, the people who sign up for a weekly email you do um uh, the uh, week in review and also folks who are on Twitter v- at VD Hansen uh, is your handle. So maybe follow you there. Now, Victor, uh, people 
listen on all plat many platforms, and one of them Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. On Apple, people can leave reviews and they can leave ratings from one to one to, or zero stars. You can just leave it blank and and not like the show, but if up to five. And the average is pretty close to five. There are very few people who have given anything less than that. So um, there's great great interest. And, and uh, uh, appeal that this program has had over the last two years. So we thank those who do that, who take the time to leave a review. Some people leave comments and here's one very short and sweet. This is from uh, G E H S B E S. I'm, uh, I, I'm not sure how to, how to even, this is a collection of, of just letters, uh, but it's titled this man is so smart. And by the way, they're not talking about me. Quote of the podcast. I went to Selma High back in the 1980s. It was a nice small town. I feel a kinship with him since I lived there too, which is very nice. So thank you, G-E-H-S-E-B-E-S and various other letters. Thanks for your comment. Thanks for others who leave their comments and spread the news about the show. We can visit victorhanson.com, sign up. And thanks very much for listening. Victor, thank you for sharing all the wisdom you did today. And we'll be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you for listening, everybody. 